Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, Episode 39 on the Armada, Part 1, Foreign Policy. So just a quick reminder that seats are filling up quickly on our spring English cathedrals tour. So if you'd like to come spend a fantastic week exploring amazing places, hearing fantastic music in the most authentic settings, go to www.bigworld.com for dates, itinerary, and price information. Again, that's www.bigworld, all one word, bigworld.com. Thanks. Episode 39 of the Renaissance English History Podcast, The Strong Current Leading Towards the Armada. Get the water reference? Current? Ships? Ha ha. <laughs> I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more in touch with our own humanity. So really quick admin notes this week. First, if you aren't signed up for my newsletter yet, you should totally sign up. It's free and you can do it on the website, www.englandcast.com. And here's why you should do it. Newsletter subscribers get exclusive content. For example, in December, there was the digital advent calendar as well as an extra mini cast. And this month, there's going to be a video cast of a trip my daughter and I took to Cadith this week to talk about Drake and the raid in 1587. So yeah, Hannah helps out, um, mostly by being cute. She's two. So that's going to be sent out to newsletter subscribers next week. It's totally free. And I promise I won't ever spam you or sell your email address or anything mean like that. Also, don't forget there are show notes available for each episode now at www.englandcast.com. And you can also text the listener feedback line, which is 801-6-TESCO, 801-683-9756. And you can send feedback, show ideas, random nice thoughts, anything like that. So let's talk about the Spanish Armada, shall we? I'm doing two episodes on the Armada this month because you can't just do one episode, right? We might even wind up making a third one sometime, but for now we're doing two. This one is going to focus on the foreign policy issues that led up to the actual week and a half of fighting. And then in the next episode, in about two more weeks, I'll look at the battle itself and the fallout. So let's look at where we are in the mid 1580s. Okay. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, is past 50. England still doesn't have an official heir. Mary, Queen of Scots, has been executed in 1587, and this was the culmination of years of paranoia over the perceived Catholic threat. 
We've talked in other episodes about how in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, she tried to be a lenient and accepting monarch of Catholics, as long as they still kept up the appearance of belonging to the Church of England. She famously didn't want to, quote, make windows into men's souls. She was like, if you go to church and you show obedience, I don't really care what you do in your free time. But that all changed with the first Northern Catholic rebellion and then the subsequent papal bull excommunicating her. So this excommunication didn't actually stop there, which would have been bad enough, but it also advised her subjects that they no longer had to obey her. And in fact, if they assassinated her, it wouldn't necessarily even be a bad thing. So this means that her Catholic subjects are in the position of having to jeopardize either their immortal soul or their mortal lives. So in the eyes then of Elizabeth's advisors, like Francis Walsingham, who was really Protestant, really devout Protestant, it made every Catholic a potential traitor. Things got really difficult for Catholics after that papal bull. And if you remember from the episode on Catholics in England, torture was used during this period in English history more than any other time. And over 200 people were killed because of their religious beliefs, including Jesuit priests who had been missionaries sent back to England to perform the mass. By 1575, there was a group of 200 English exiles in the Spanish army that was commanded by an English captain in the Netherlands, and they had all sworn their allegiance to Philip of Spain. Also, the Catholic response to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris in 1572, this was where over 70,000 Protestant Huguenots were murdered in a span of about two months. It started in Paris with 3,000 killed, and it spread into the countryside to places like Orléans, Rouen, Lyon, and Toulouse. The Catholic response was to celebrate that. So the Pope had a Te Deum sung to celebrate the victory over the heretics, and he also struck a medal to commemorate it, and he commissioned the painter Vasari to paint a series of frescoes portraying the destruction of the Protestant Huguenots in the Vatican. That was kind of the tension going on in England at the time. The relationship with Philip and with Spain had always been sketchy. Elizabeth first met Philip. He was the great-grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. She first met him in the 1550s when she was a young princess and he was marrying her sister, Mary Tudor. Under the terms of their marriage contract, Philip was to have all of Mary's titles and land holdings for as long as she was alive. And so, for a few years, Philip was actually the King of England. He wasn't just a consort. Coins from the time period show Mary and Philip with one crown hanging over them both. Mary and Philip were the joint signers of royal documents, and since he could not read English, Important state documents during this time are in both English and Spanish, and an act of parliament actually gave him the title of king. So Philip loses that title when Mary dies. He had been the king. Suddenly he's not. And not only that, Elizabeth is on the throne, right? So with Mary, he had this joint dream that England would be reunited with the Catholic faith and reconciled with the Pope. 
And Philip was really an incredibly devout man, devout to the Pope and to Catholicism. And he kept nurturing that dream even after Mary died. When Elizabeth first inherited the throne, the Count of Feria said, the kingdom is entirely in the hands of young folks, heretics, and traitors. And the queen does not favor a single man whom her majesty, referring to Mary, now in heaven would have received. There was quite an uproar among the Catholic nations at the time that suddenly this young 20-something was just running things and uh, not listening to any of the old advisors. Immediately after Elizabeth was crowned, he proposed marriage to her, wanting to keep his ties in England. And also perhaps he might have been able to force some religious concessions and protections for the Catholics. So she kept him waiting and she wound up saying no. And I think it's ironic that the the reason she gave was actually the same Bible verse that uh, from Leviticus that her father had used to justify the annulment of his marriage from Catherine of Aragon in order to marry Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother. So I can kind of imagine, you know, given what happened the last time that Bible verse had been brought out, which ended in the uh, separation of England from the Pope and the dissolution of the monasteries, I can just kind of imagine Philip reading that and smacking his head and going, oh, no, right? Like, what? what's that mean for the, for the future? But anyway, that was the verse from Leviticus saying that how a man shouldn't marry his brother's widow, and if they did, it, they would be childless. And of course, she meant that she shouldn't marry her sister's widower. Anyway, one thing to keep in mind here also is that in the mind of many Catholics, Elizabeth wasn't actually a legitimate heir. And I've said this before, she was born when Catherine of Aragon was still alive. So if you didn't recognize the divorce, which Catholics didn't, she, Elizabeth, would have been the product of an affair or bigamy. And either way, she wasn't considered legitimate. So for a while, even after he was jilted, Philip stayed on fairly peaceful terms with England. He actually even stuck up for Elizabeth when the Pope excommunicated her. This was really a strategic decision. He wasn't on peaceful terms with the French, and so he needed to have England balancing things out. It's always that little triangle between England, France, and Spain, right? In this stage, Spain wanted to have England on their side. But then, 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 then Elizabeth sided with the Protestant rebels in the Netherlands. So what was going on at this point was the Netherlands were under the control of the Habsburgs, namely Philip and Spain. And the Protestants were rebelling against this Catholic rule. Protestantism had taken hold in Northern Europe more than in the South. And there were a lot of Protestants in the Netherlands who lived in fear of their lives. Plus, of course, the Spanish Inquisition was going strong, the secret police force that was rooting out all of these Protestant threats. And I really, really, really want to do a Monty Python quote here about nobody expecting the Spanish Inquisition. I I really want to, but I will refrain. If you don't know that skit, you really must YouTube it. I think I'll put it up in the show notes. It's comedy gold. Anyway, In 1584, Philip signed a treaty with the French, the Catholic League, the French, 
promising to support France in fighting the Protestant Huguenots. So then in 1585, Elizabeth signs her own treaty, the Treaty of Nonsuch, which promised troops and support to the rebels in the Spanish Netherlands. And this support was really real. It wasn't just nominal. She promised 6,400 foot soldiers, 1,000 cavalry, and a subsidy of about 600,000 florins a year. And of course, we heard in the episode on Tudor poets how Philip, Sir Philip Sidney died in the Spanish Netherlands fighting the Spanish. So this was really real. Add to this the fact that Elizabeth had not just turned a blind eye, but had actually encouraged piracy against Spanish ships coming back from the New World. This had been going on for years with people like Francis Drake, who were intercepting and meeting up with these Spanish ships, coming back loaded with gold and silver. And of course, at the time, Spain was the largest empire in the world. And the Exchequer in Madrid was filling up with gold mined in South America. And the English pirates, like I said, Drake, were attacking the ships and were filling up Elizabeth's own coffers with that pirated money. Philip had been annoyed by this for some time, but it was when England finally seriously started sending troops to fight him in the Netherlands that he considered it an all-out act of war. Then, in 1587, Mary, Queen of Scots, is killed. Philip hadn't been thrilled with the idea of Mary being the Queen of England. And early on, he wasn't thrilled with this because of her ties to France. Her mother was French, and she had been the Queen of France before her husband died and she returned to Scotland. But he was supportive of her simply because she was a Catholic, and his devotion to the Pope was stronger than his suspicion of Mary. He wrote that if she became queen, it would be agreeable to all Christians and would be contested by none. She had also hinted that Philip would be her heir if she was to be made queen. So when she was finally executed, this ended his dreams of returning England to Catholicism. So he started brooding on three decades worth of insults, and the Armada was his answer. English advisors and people in shipping, merchants, they knew right away that something was up. And in fact, Philip didn't really want it to be a secret. He wanted England to know that he was coming for the Catholics to get ready for a fight and for the Protestants to be fearful. In 1587, England was beginning to prepare, but it was really this sort of hodgepodge of preparation. She famously, of course, didn't want to spend money on defense or weapons or supplies. And she had no standing army, just a garrison in the north on the border with Scotland and one in Dover. The soldiers that she did have were not particularly well trained. It was actually thought that the Dorset troops were more likely to fight each other than the Spanish, for example. And so England was not well prepared for this threat. Her advisors, many of her advisors, the hawkish ones like Walsingham, they wanted her to strike first, to attack the Spanish when they would least expect it. Francis Drake was also very hawkish, and they were pressuring her throughout January, February, March of 1587. They were saying, let's go to Spain, let's attack, let's do something big. And Elizabeth finally gives the okay for a raid. And soon Drake is on his way to the Iberian Peninsula with 25 ships. And he managed to raid the port of Cadiz. And this wasn't just a raid. (laughs) This was just a very daring entrance into protected waters 
where he destroyed the Spanish supply ships, burned them to the water level, burned hundreds of tons of wheat, filled up his own ships, and made a huge impact on the preparations for the Armada. He gathered intelligence, he took hostages, he raided towns all along the coast, and he generally pissed off the Spanish. The raid was actually called the Singeing of the King of Spain's Beard. And it basically bought England another year to prepare for the invasion. It gave them a greater understanding of the threat that they were about to face and much more intelligence of how to defend against it. And hey, just a reminder that if you sign up for my newsletter next week, I'm sending out the uh, video cast of my trip to Cadiz, which gives a lot more detail on all of that. So that was the short version. <laughs> Philip, of course, his response to this was he was he was even angrier and more ready to invade and and fight than ever before. He brushed off the raid. He moved ahead with his preparations, and an armada sailed the next summer, the summer of 1588, planning to meet with the Spanish army in the Netherlands and to launch a huge invasion of England with both armies combined. So the plan was sail north, enter the English Channel, get to the Netherlands, meet up with the army there, and then there's really nothing that England has to be able to fight that. That was the plan. So let's leave it there for this week, shall we? A fleet of 125 ships, 60,000 soldiers, 7,000 sailors, a crescent-shaped line that extended for over two miles, dedicated to the eradication of Elizabeth and Protestants, and even possibly England, which was not a pleasant thought if you were living on the South Coast anywhere, I can imagine. So the book recommendation this week is The Spanish Armada by Robert Hutchinson. And I will put a link up on the site and the Facebook page, which again is facebook.com slash Englandcast. You can go there again to contact me, send me show ideas, or just say nice things. And again, you can get all the book recommendations, the show notes, everything like that at englandcast.com. And next time, I'm going to be talking to you about the actual battle itself and how, spoiler alert, England beat back this mighty invincible invasion. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're having a great new year, and I will talk to you again soon. Blow, northern wind, ascend, for maybe sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrich, that soul is Samley's on sea. Full maiden of me, fair and freight of wonder. In all this world, flesh of one, born of blood and of bone, never yet in Houston on, not somewhere in London. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. 
They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.